We are jumping back into the Gospel of Mark with one of the most familiar parables, the parable of the sower, and also one of the most challenging few verses in all of the, all the Gospel. And so I, um, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for it. I gave it to Simon um, because of that, right? But Simon Jones is going to be our preacher this morning. Simon came to us year. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Simon came to us years ago and jumped right in to serve with our youth ministry. And some of you may not know this, but Simon is an exceptional just dance player. He, he is the church's best line dancer, I promise you. He's probably the most read, a most well-read friend I have in this ministry here. And Simon has a great ability to handle the Word of God. And we're so excited to hear what he is going to share with us. You may not know this, but Simon is the most downloaded pastor of 2019 at Newtown Road. That's a little humbling to, I'm not going to lie, that's a little humbling to take, right? But if you haven't heard his message from the end of the summer season last year on, on the, the just extolling the glories of the word of God, you need to go back and listen to it. It will stop you dead in your tracks, and God will use that richly to bless your life. I'm going to ask him to come up this morning, and I'm going to pray for him and for these other needs this morning um, as we begin our teaching portion of the service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness to our church. Thank you for the way you've answered our prayers and provided for our needs. We pray for your blessings to continue here. Lord, we pray this morning for Robert Martinez, my brother and pastor friend in the City Rise Baptist Church. God, we pray that you would plant them deep in the, uh, in the soil of Albany. God, use them as a light to reach people. God, I pray that the gospel would shine brightly in Albany through Robert's preaching and teaching and through the ministry of that church. We pray that you would raise up more people to join them. And God, that you'd give them great success and great advancement as they seek to share your gospel in the darkest place in this state. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a good support to them and to celebrate their wins, not to see them as competition, but to cheer them on as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this morning, as Simon comes to bring the message, Lord, I pray that your spirit would attend the preaching of the word, that God, as he speaks, that we wouldn't hear the voices of just a mere man, but that we would hear your voice through him, through the pages of the scripture. God, bring to fruition his study, his prayer, and his preparation so that you might build up and edify and strengthen our church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <laughs> quite an introduction. I don't know why that video of me playing Just Dance keeps getting shared. That's not appropriate. <laughs> All right, uh, good morning. It is, uh, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting, uh, welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, if you would like to turn there. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Simon. I work at the Albany Airport as an air traffic controller. Uh, here at church, I spend an unreasonably large amount of time serving with our students uh, from middle school all the way through college. Uh, in fact, this weekend, a group of middle school students are away at a retreat in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, let me tell you from personal experience that uh, nothing tests the mettle of a youth worker like a retreat with a group of middle school students. <laughs> One night, or even a single night event, simple. It's when you get to the multi-night events, the real challenge comes. There's always lack of sleep, lots of coffee, junk food, so much junk food. Honestly, anything is possible. Uh, to give you just a flavor, a number of years ago, uh, I was at a middle school event up in Saratoga with our students. Uh, the students in my room that night were Owen Spolstra and Nicholas Hill, both of whom are seniors in high school, uh, which makes me feel old. And there is one other young man. Uh, we are settling into our room, and I notice this other young man brought a whole gallon of sunny delight with him for the weekend. Now, I can appreciate this. Uh, I, too, was a Sunny D enthusiast in middle school, and honestly, all the way through my 20s. Um, however, what I notice next surprises me as he takes his Sunny D and locks it in the hotel safe. Uh, we briefly chat about it, and I try to convince him that no one will steal his Sunny Delight and putting it in the hotel safe, totally unnecessary. <laughs> However, he remains unpersuaded, 
and in the hotel safe it went, and then we went about our activities for the evening. Uh, after the day's events, uh, we're, it's like probably midnight now, probably at least an hour after curfew, we finally turn off the lights. Turning out the lights, though, did little to signal to Nick and Owen that it was time to sleep. As they talked, and talked, and talked. In fact, it was impressive to me, I see you out there, it was impressive to me that they could talk so long, whispering as if I couldn't hear them. <laughs> After multiple pleas, some more stern than others, finally, there was silence. It was surely 1 a.m. at this point, and I was drifting off to sleep. The silence wouldn't last. The stillness was soon pierced by the sound of beep, beep, beep. <laughs> as this other guy is opening up the hotel safe. And I look at him with as much grace as I can muster as we approach 2 a.m. And I say, what are you doing? And he looks at me, sensing an undercurrent of frustration and possible anger, and says with innocent eyes, I just wanted some Sunny D. <laughs> uh, looking back now, it's funny. Uh, I was woken up in the middle of the night by a teenage boy who opened up the hotel safe to retrieve the sunny delight he had placed there to satisfy a craving. Um, so, never forget that. Um, I do look forward to hearing the stories, serious and funny, from the middle school retreat this weekend. I sincerely hope, though, you are not here this morning to hear my funny stories about serving with the students because they have no value. They provide no grace for the guilty, no help for the needy, no strength for the weary, no hope for the grieving. However, I do know words that can accomplish all of those things, and they are not the words of a mere man. We live in a world where people love the sound of their own voice, from social media to cable news to talk radio. We are surrounded by it daily inundated with the words and opinions of people. From sports to politics, Sunday morning should be different. It must be different. Not long ago, I came across this quote from a pastor from Texas. He writes this, When a man goes to church, he often hears a preacher in the pulpit rehash everything that he has read in the editorials, the newspapers, and the magazines. On the TV commentaries, he hears that same stuff over again, yawns, and goes out and plays golf on Sunday. When a man comes to church, actually what he is saying is this, Preacher, I know what the TV commentator has to say. I hear him every day. I know what the editorial writer has to say. I read it every day. I know what the magazines have to say. I read them every week. Preacher, what I want to know is this. Does God have anything to say? If God has something to say, tell us what it is. I hope that is why you're here today. That is my goal this morning. The first time I preached, I said this, my words are worth listening to only insofar as they are repetition, exposition, and proper application of the words of this book, the Bible, God's word, totally true, containing no errors, authoritative, and always relevant. God has spoken, and he has spoken in this book. So we're going to open it and see what it says this morning. Today we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, slowly working our way through it. We took a break during Advent and then through January, but I'm, I'm excited to be back in. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read them all. It says this, Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. 
Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for this chance to gather. Thank you for your word. I pray that this morning you'd incline our hearts to your word, that you'd open our eyes so that we behold beautiful things in it, that you'd unite our hearts, Lord, that you'd free us from distraction, and that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. Help me be faithful to the text. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, just a little review of what's happened through the first three chapters of Mark. Jesus has burst on the scene, moving from town to town, large crowds are following him. He has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's named his apostles. He's exercised authority over demons. He's healed lepers. He's healed the paralytic and many others with diseases, displaying authority over nature. And people were exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this. He has also shown authority in teaching amazing and stunning people. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And Jesus' teaching was bold, and it was clear, and he was declaring the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is near. God's rule and God's reign are upon us. And the right response to this is twofold. You must repent to turn away, to turn around from who or what you were following, from what was ruling your life, and you turn towards Jesus. And secondly, you believe, you trust this good news that the kingdom has come. While Jesus' teaching was bold and astonished people, it also offended people. Not everyone was happy that Jesus was on the scene. At the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there is a man there with a withered hand. And the scribes and the Pharisees are watching to see what Jesus will do. And Jesus asks them this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. And how did the Pharisees respond to this? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They were already seeking how to kill him. Later in chapter 3, the scribes, unable to deny Jesus' power, instead attribute his power to Satan, accusing him of being an agent of the devil. 
And lastly, in chapter 3, even Jesus' own family, when the crowds came, tried to seize him, saying he is out of his mind. Jesus is on the scene doing powerful and amazing things, teaching with authority to the great crowds following him. But even now, there's intense opposition. It seems not everyone is responding to his teaching that the kingdom of God has come with joy and with gladness. This brings us to today's passage. Verse 1 sets the stage and tells us the large crowds are still around Jesus. Near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus gets into a boat while the crowds are standing on the shore, and he begins to teach the crowd from the boat, speaking in parables. What is a parable? Well, the word parable is made up of the prefix para, P-A-R-A, which means alongside of, or beside, or near. We have like lots of words like parallel, or parachute, or paralegal, which is someone who works alongside a lawyer, or like a parachurch organization, which is an organization that works alongside or beside the church. The second half of the word parable comes from a root word meaning to throw. So it's as if we're throwing something alongside something else. It's like we're throwing this story alongside our teaching to clarify or to illustrate it. The parable is a short story, an extended metaphor, an illustration, an analogy that teaches. Using parables was common for rabbis in the days of Jesus. It was used to help make clear their teaching. Parables are common in the Bible, but are concentrated only in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The rest of the New Testament contains no parables. A few parables can be found in the Old Testament, Perhaps most famously when Nathan the prophet comes to King David after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Nathan tells David a story about a rich man who instead of using one of his own lambs when a meal needed to be prepared for a visitor, instead takes and kills a poor man's single precious lamb. David, really not understanding this parable, outraged declares this man should be punished. And then Nathan the prophet utters those striking words, you are the man. Generally, parables convey one central truth. We should therefore not try to find spiritual meaning in every single little detail, but discern the main central point. Ask, what is Jesus teaching here? Is he saying this parable in response to a question or an event that has happened? What is the central truth? The parable of the sower is one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. It's one of only three parables that's recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Traditionally, it's called the parable of the sower, but a more appropriate title would be the parable of the soils since it mainly concerns the different soils and how they receive the sown seed. This is a parable about how we hear and receive the words of Jesus. It's a parable about hearing. In some ways, it's a parable about parables. In verse 13, Jesus says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It seems if we don't get this parable right, we won't get any parable right. Or put another way, understanding this parable is the key to understanding all of Jesus' parables. And it all depends on how a person hears. This parable is really important. And it does answer a question that surely was simmering in the minds of the first readers of Mark. Why is the message of the kingdom of God meeting with such a mixed reception? If Jesus is Savior, why do so few follow him? Why did Israel's leaders reject their long-awaited deliverer? Why does not the hearing of doctrine produce the same results in every heart 
What accounts for these diverse responses? It is those questions this parable answers. And the answer Jesus provides is that the nature of the response is determined by the nature of the heart that receives it. The nature of our response to Jesus' words is determined by the nature of our hearts. Verse 3, Jesus starts with the imperative, listen, listen. This is not a call for mere understanding or comprehension, but something more. Because there is a way to hear without really hearing. According to verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody has ears, but there's another kind of ear, a spiritual ear. It seems that only some people have. There is an ear that hears more than words. It hears these words, but then embraces these words. It embraces Jesus' words as beautiful and compelling and powerful and transforming and then delights to follow and obey. And these ears, these spiritual ears, the spiritual sight is a divine gift. If the extent of our listening stops at comprehension without any accompanying obedience, no discernible change in actions or attitudes or affections, we have missed something. Something is wrong. We're not really hearing. So the sower goes out to sow. And the seed that he sows or scatters, according to verse 14, is the word. It's the gospel, the glorious good news that Jesus has come, that salvation is possible for broken people, and that it's free, unearned, a gift. In the parable, the sower would primarily represent Jesus, but in a larger sense, it would represent anyone who faithfully proclaims the gospel. So that would be you and me today. We are to sow the word of God. We are to scatter the word of God wherever we go. And we are to do it indiscriminately and liberally. We are not to view some people as worthy of the gospel and other people's as unworthy of hearing it. We are to make no distinctions in our proclamation of the greatest news in the history of the world. We are simply to spread the gospel everywhere at all times. We are to sow the word at work. We are to spread the gospel at school. We are to proclaim the gospel at Walmart, at Taco Bell, at Stewart's, in our neighborhoods. And we're not to worry about the results or whether our hearers have hearts that respond in faith because we're not responsible for that. God prepares the hearts of people to receive the gospel. He, and he alone, grants faith and growth. 1 Corinthians 3 says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This frees us from a terrible and a crushing burden. I am not responsible for the response of those I share the gospel with. All we have to do is preach and proclaim to share and spread the gospel faithfully. God does the rest. So are you doing it? Are we doing it? Are we sowing and spreading the word liberally? And now there are four responses to the preached and proclaimed word of God represented by four different soils. And each one corresponds to a different heart and a different way of hearing. Four soils, four responses, four ways to listen. Firstly, in verse 4, Jesus says, Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And in verse 15, Jesus helpfully explains that these are the ones who, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This is the person with the hard heart. This is the calloused heart. The hard-hearted person. These are people who hear the word, but pay absolutely no attention to it. This is the heart of a skeptic blind to the beauty of God and the glory of his word. Some people are so hardened by the word that they put up no appearances of paying heed to it. They reject it outright. They do not hear with faith. 
They make, no, they make no start on the road of following Christ. They certainly bear no fruit of repentance, showing no evidence of change. One commentator writes, the word produces no more effect on them than water on a stone. Hard heart. That is one way of listening. The calloused heart, it produces no fruit. Secondly, in verse 5, Jesus says, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Jesus explains in verse 16 that these are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the person with the shallow heart, the superficial heart, or the convenient heart. This is the person who it appears responds with faith, for they immediately receive the word with joy, but just as quickly, when hardship or persecution arises, they fall away. The word takes no root in their heart. Their shallow spiritual roots cannot sustain the profession of faith that they have made when difficulty arises. J.C. Ryle comments, These are they on whom preaching produces temporary impressions, but no deep, lasting, and abiding effect. There is no stability about their religion. Their impressions are like Jonah's gourd, which came up in a night and perished in a night. They fade as rapidly as they grow. Mere outward enthusiasm and appearance is no sure sign of conversion. True saving faith is proven over time as people stand, through, stand with Christ through much suffering. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes though tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor. Testing proves our faith. It demonstrates that it's real, that it's genuine, that it's authentic. This heart, the convenient heart, has failed to count the cost of discipleship. To be sure, the offer of salvation is a free gift, but Jesus doesn't hide the fact that the demands of discipleship are as total as the offer is free. Jesus himself tells us to count the cost of following him. However, many of us would rather negotiate the cost than count it. That is, we are willing to give up things, but we aren't willing to give up the right to determine what things those are, which keeps us firmly on the throne of our own life. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14 Starting in verse 27, Jesus is speaking and he says this, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So therefore, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So therefore, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Before you embark on some great endeavor, some undertaking, some trip, you count the cost to make sure you can finish. In a similar way, Jesus commands us to count the cost of following him so that we are able to finish. Have you counted the cost of following Christ? And what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, what was the cross? What did the cross represent? The cross was an instrument of shame. It was meant to shame in the most undignified way imaginable the person pinned up on it like a specimen on display. 
The cross was an instrument of opposition. Loudly and clearly, the cross says, we oppose this person. This person is wrong. This person is the scum of the earth. The cross was an instrument of suffering, of the most severe kind. It was intended to inflict maximum pain while prolonging agony. And finally, ultimately, the cross was an instrument of execution, of death, opposition, shame, suffering, and death. So what does it mean to take up your cross? I think it means to willingly, to intentionally choose a path that leads to opposition, shame, suffering, and death, all for the sake of following Christ. To be willing to choose opposition, shame, suffering, and death in obedience to Christ. To choose opposition over the approval of this world. To choose shame over the honor and praise of men. To choose suffering over easy comforts and pleasures. And to choose death over security and safety, all in obedience to Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross. That's the cost of discipleship. John Piper writes that if you follow Christ, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. In Acts 21, the Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he'll be arrested. He says this, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a man who's counted the cost and said it's worth it. John Stott writes these convicting words. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. All too many people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become a bit involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and its shape to suit their convenience. No wonder cynics complain of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Have you counted the cost? That's a second way to hear. The convenient heart. It produces no fruit. There is a third way to hear. In verse 7, Jesus says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And Jesus explains in verse 18 that these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the person with the casual heart, the divided heart, the half-hearted person, the casual heart. Once again, this person starts off well, but just like the one who falls away due to persecution, this person also ultimately turns away from Jesus. This is the person who's flirting with Christianity, playing the game, so to speak. This person is not all in. They attend church, they hear the preaching of God's word, and to a certain extent, they obey it. They acknowledge that it is right and that it is good, and they may even abstain from many things which the gospel condemns, but they stop short. They haven't given their hearts to Christ. They become distracted, divided in loyalty, maybe even by things that aren't in them themselves evil, but they end up deserting Christ for the lesser gods of power or pleasure or fame or fortune. This group may last a little bit longer than those of the rocky soil, but ultimately their true colors are revealed and their discipleship is proven false. 
They bear no fruit, and they fall away. I suppose it's no great wonder that persecution can be the cause of someone's falling away from Jesus. There is no surprise there. What I think is particularly shocking is that prosperity can do the exact same thing. And it is so sinister because you may not even be aware it's happening. We really need to pay attention here. And to state the obvious, in America, prosperity is a much greater problem than persecution. We are all, on the main, very prosperous. It's possible we may face mild persecution, and I don't want to diminish that. Uh, Maybe you get ridiculed or scorned or mocked or even passed over at work for a job. But that's a far cry from making a decision to go to church on Sunday at the cost of your life. The writer of a recent book I read wrote this. There is a great gulf between the Christianity that wrestles with whether to worship at the cost of imprisonment and death and the Christianity that wrestles with whether the kids should play soccer on Sunday morning. Do we recall the encounter Jesus had with the rich young ruler? After the young man leaves, rejecting Jesus, full of sorrow because he was rich and unwilling to give it up, Jesus utters a warning we need to hear. He says, quote, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Hear that? He's talking to the wealthy. He's talking to us here. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Shocked, the disciples then ask, then who can be saved? And thanks be to God that Jesus answered, what is impossible with man is possible with God. But why is it so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven? What is it about having money and possessions that is so dangerous that it can suffocate our faith? When you have money, I think a lot of times you tend to put your trust in money. You tend to retreat to your savings account for security and comfort and satisfaction. You tend to start thinking that money can solve all your problems. And that's And if that's where your comfort and security and trust is, you're going to make decisions based on how to get more of it or how to protect it. And you're certainly not going to want to part with it. And at root, money is basically a symbol of the resources of the world, man's resources, self-sufficiency absent God's help. Ultimately, this person, the wealthy person, is seeking to be their own savior. They're trusting in themselves and their resources. But Christianity is of a totally opposite nature. There are no self-reliant people in heaven. Christianity says, my resources are totally inadequate. I need help from outside myself. I cannot solve my deepest problems. I need a savior. And the Christian throws himself at the feet of Jesus for mercy. Trust Jesus to be his security and his comfort and his satisfaction. Trust Jesus to solve his deepest problems. And when your comfort and security and supreme satisfaction are in Jesus, you're going to make decisions based on how to get more of him. To know him better. To to surrender totally to his rule and his reign. The psalmist reminds us that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Wealth is deceitful. Fame is deceitful. Possessions are deceitful. They're making promises to us. Pursue me and you'll be happy. Pursue me and you'll be satisfied. Pursue me and you'll have security and comfort and rest for your soul. But they're lying to us. Wealth will be no comfort on the day of deep disappointment. Fame doesn't walk with you through the fiery furnace of affliction Worldly power provides no hope at death's doorstep. Possessions cannot bear the weight of our souls. And if we pursue these things, ultimately they betray us and our sorrows multiply. Over and against these things, Jesus stands also making promises, saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. 
I am the fountain of living water. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I will never leave you or forsake you. And he pleads with us, come to me. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and weary, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest. The most miserable people I've seen are those who live with a foot in both worlds, hedging their bets. They have one eye on heaven and one eye on earth. They call on the name of Christ, but still try to find security and satisfaction, pleasure and fulfillment from the world. They're right in the fence. R.C. Sproul writes this, God doesn't want me to play with religion. He doesn't want me to dabble in church. He wants me, body and soul. Don't run after other gods. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Are you all in? That's the third way to hear, the casual heart. It produces no fruit. And finally, there's the fourth way to hear. In verse 8, Jesus says, And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And in verse 20, Jesus explains these are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. This is the committed heart, the committed heart fully in. The gospel is heard, received, believed, welcomed, and embraced. There is one difference between the first three types of soil and this one. One difference. The committed heart bears fruit. Matthew Henry writes this, That which distinguishes this good ground from the rest was, in one word, fruitfulness. He does not say that this good ground has no stones in it or no thorns, but there were none that prevailed to hinder its fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is the defining mark of the good soil. But what does that mean? What does it mean to bear fruit or to produce fruit? Luke chapter 6 says this, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Fruit does not make a tree good, nor does fruit give life. Fruit is a sign of life. We know a tree by its fruit. It's a pretty common image in the New Testament. John the Baptist tells us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, or put another way, produce fruit consistent with repentance, or as paraphrased by J.B. Phillips, go and do something to show that your hearts are really changed. Because when you're all in, when you've counted the cost and surrendered to Jesus as your Savior, when you've repented and turned from your heinous sin and your gross indifference to God, when by sheer grace you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, when the miracle of new birth happens, you are no longer the same person. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. And you will act differently. There will be a change in your behavior and your attitudes and the pattern of your life. You will act in a way that honors God and deals lovingly with people. There are marks of a Christian. Theologian Charles Hodge writes this, It is impossible, it is impossible for, any way, for anyone to share the benefits of Jesus' death without being conformed to his life. It's impossible to share the benefits of Jesus' death without being conformed to his life. You cannot share the benefits of forgiveness of sin, of pardon of sin, of everlasting life, of fellowship with Almighty God, and not at the same time continually be transformed to look like your Savior. It's simply not possible. By way of example, forgiveness. Do you delight to forgive others? Or do you hold on to grudges? The Christian forgives. Not to earn God's favor, but because he or she knows how much God has forgiven them. The reason we can forgive others is because God has forgiven us freely. And the evidence of a heart that's been forgiven is a heart that lavishes glad-hearted forgiveness onto others. John Piper writes this, Joy in the merciful God cannot spurn being merciful. 
You cannot despise becoming what you enjoy about God. Joy in the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for undeserving sinners cannot return evil for evil. The joy will love being merciful. A forgiving heart flows from being forgiven. The list can go on. Sin will be hated, resisted, and renounced. And holiness will be displayed in humility and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Are you producing a harvest? That's the fourth way to hear, the committed heart, and it produces a harvest. The calloused heart, the convenient heart, the casual heart, and the committed heart. Four soils, representing four hearts, showing four ways that we listen. And it all boils down to producing a harvest or not. In a lot of ways, there are really only two soils, those that produce no fruit and the one that does. And it all turns on our response to Jesus. And finally, verses 10 through 12. Verse 12 is a direct quote from Isaiah 6. These are difficult verses. This is a hard word, but it is a word we must hear. They tell us, these verses, that Jesus speaks in parables for a double purpose. His parables are designed to test, not our intelligence, but our hearts. For those inside the kingdom, parables are clarifying and illuminating and softening. But for those outside, parables are concealing and blinding and hardening. Jesus teaches in parables both as judgment against those outside and as instruction to those inside. The hiding of the kingdom of God through parables is not a consequence of the teaching. Christ's teaching is not difficult to comprehend as an intellectual matter. Even today, many unbelievers read the Gospels and understand what Jesus means by his teaching. Their problem is moral hardness. They know what Jesus teaches, but they do not believe it. The parables do not create fresh unbelief. Rather, they confirm the opposition already present. And apart from grace, they use our Lord's teaching to increase their resistance. To those who accept Jesus, parables clarify and illuminate the kingdom of God. To those who reject him, parables are a judgment and a warning. This is a serious word. We need to pray, seriously pray, that God gives us spiritual sight. Salvation is either a gift from first or last, or it's not a gift. God's grace is my only plea. I have no other boast. I have no other hope. Be careful how you hear. Something is happening. Jesus is a decision point. He's a crisis point. Peter calls him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus himself says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Simeon, when Jesus was just a baby, prophesies in Luke 2 that Jesus is appointed to cause the rise and fall of many and to be a sign that will be opposed. Jesus and the claims he makes divides all people into two camps based on their response to him. There is opposition and there is embrace. You have to do something with him. So how will you respond? What will you do with him this morning? And my earnest prayer this morning is that you would respond like the king of Nineveh when the word preached through Jonah reached him. The scriptures record that the king got off his throne, exchanged his robes for sackcloth, and sat in ashes and repented. I entreat you to take seriously the words of Jesus, that you too would get off the throne of your life, transferring who or whatever you're trusting in to be your savior and move it fully onto Christ. That you would humble yourselves, repent, and turn to Christ and find rest for your soul. And the only reason why this is possible is because Jesus too got off his throne. He also made an exchange as he surrendered his kingly crown for a crown of thorns. He humbled himself and became a man. He lived the perfect life I could not live. He died the death on the cross I deserved in my place as my substitute. 
And three days later, he rose again. And now by faith in his finished work, when my life is united to Christ's, God's wrath is satisfied and I'm forgiven. Stamped across all my God-belittling sins and self-centeredness, my rebellion and disobedience are the words paid in full. That's the gospel. For hearts that are cold, for seizing control, for scorning our very maker, in thought, word, and deed, we failed you, our king. How deeply we need a savior. But there on a tree, a king among thieves, you bled for a world's betrayal. You love to the end, our merciful friend, how pure and forever faithful. Turn your eyes to the hillside, where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless debt was erased. Four soils, representing four hearts, showing four ways we receive Jesus' words. And all of us belong to one of them. How will you respond to his words today? Have you counted the cost? Are you all in? Are you producing a harvest? I conclude this morning with words from the book of Hebrews. The author writes this in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you came, that you sent your son to come as a man, to die in my place, to live the life I couldn't live, to offer forgiveness to everyone. I pray, Father, that you would give everyone in this room hearts that respond in faith, hearts that embrace you, hearts that count the cost, hearts that don't flirt with Christianity but are all in, hearts that sow the word liberally and indiscriminately as we go from this place at home and at school and at work. Father, your grace is our only plea. It's our only hope. It's our only boast. Make us more like your son today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.